It is Palm Sunday, uh, and, but as we work our way through the book of Galatians, not necessarily a Palm Sunday s- sermon, but uh, we do acknowledge that today is that day. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16, that's where we're going to be. We're actually going to read a pretty big chunk of scripture today, um, and, uh, and, and that'll bring us to where we will close out Galatians uh, next week during Easter, which is, is really fun, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm actually I'm very excited about that message and where I think it's, God's going to lead us. But uh, let's start today, Galatians chapter 16. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll, I'll share some thoughts. Starting at verse 16, so I, Paul, say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you. As I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, gentleness, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there, are no law, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch over yourselves, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions." Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Would you join me in prayer? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So last week when we talked about, this, uh, about Galatians, we spent a lot of time talking about the idea that it is for freedom that Christ has freed us. We took that initial phrase, it is for freedom that Christ has freed you. We looked at the, the Greek right there is really truncated. It's for freedom, Christ freed you. Freedom is both the means and the ends of Christ's act, right? For freedom, 
Christ freed you. It's the verb and the noun in that verse. And so what we saw is that Christ's freedom from really frees us from two things. Well, it frees us from slavery, but slavery that typically works itself out in religious circles in two ways. Number one is this amoral licentiousness, right? This I can do whatever it is that I want to do with my life. It's my life. I get to lead it. The other sort of uh, enslavement that happens in religious circles is, a, uh, is moral legalism, meaning that we begin to think that it is by our good th- works and by our efforts that we then are saved or deemed righteous. And Paul's argument is that both of these things are actually a false gospel. Both of them offer freedom of some sorts, or at least that's what they promise, but in the end both re- fail to deliver and wind up enslaving people. And so so they enslave us by making us slaves to our desires, right? I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm my own God. I get to decide what's right and what's wrong. That's amoral licentiousness. And so it's a, it's a religion of the self of sorts. And you then uh, uh, are caught up in your own whims and desires. You are enslaved to that or you're enslaved to your inability to actually answer the larger questions of life that you have to answer as your own God. The other enslavement happens with a moral legalist is you're always caught wondering, have I done enough? Have I proved myself worthy of enough? Have I kept all the laws? Have I kept the most important laws? Have I scored enough points in order to make it across the line where God would now say, you are deemed righteous and and welcomed in my presence. And so in both cases, neither a person is, is, I'm having trouble this morning. In both cases, we're both enslaved. Freedom, true freedom, is only found in the gospel where Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We can say that we are no longer under the law, not because the law is being disregarded, but because Christ fulfilled it. What God intended the law to do, Christ has done. And so we have true freedom. And this freedom in the gospel comes the moment that we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. The moment we enter into a relationship with Christ, that freedom is given to us. It's not something that we're waiting for. It's here and it's now. So so the moment we hear the promise, the moment we hear the good news that God says, I will remove your sins from you and I will set you free. And the moment we say, yes, I want that. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. His life, his death, his resurrection is mine. I am under that. I am in that. However we want to phrase that, right? But I'm, I'm connected to that by the power of the Holy Spirit. The moment we say that, Freedom comes, salvation is ours, and we are justified before God in his courtroom. Remember, this is the image that we talked about a long time ago. We're in the courtroom of God. To, for God as the judge, he can condemn as guilty, or he can set free as justified. And God justifies us through Christ. No longer are we under the law, but now we're counted as upstanding free citizens. The old has gone the new has come. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which I say, okay, that's, that's the Bible verse and it speaks in very definitive terms and it's, it is definitive. The new has come. But I think there's also a sense in which we need to be honest with ourselves and say like, maybe rather than saying the old has gone and the new has come, we might want to say like the old is leaving and the new is coming. Because it, it's this thing that happens over and over again, right? The, new, the old is leaving again and again and again. The old is leaving. The old is leaving. And, and again and again, the new is coming and the new is coming. 
There's this really great passage. I remember reading it the first time uh, when I was in high school. And uh, it's in Romans chapter 7. And I had to read it a couple of times to make sure that I was understanding it because Paul's language kind of bounces back and forth. And he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And he's got this whole thing where he's going, kind of bouncing with that. Like, I, there's these things that I want to do in life, but I don't do those things. Instead, there's all these things that I don't want to do, and I end up doing these things, and I can't do the things I really want to do, and I really want to do these other things, but I can't do them. He's going back and forth. And, and then there's this moment in which I was just like, yes. Like, that's, that's my experience in life. It's not just like this, this momentary, like the old is gone, the new is come, and now all of a sudden I do all the things that I want to do, but rather there's this, there's this tension, there's this back and forth, there's these desires within me to live a certain way and to follow Christ in certain areas of my life, and then there's this sense in which I never am quite there. Like, I know what I want to do, but I don't do them. And what Paul is getting at when he says this in Romans chapter 7, that, you know, the, the, the good I want to do, I do not do, and what I do, I hate. Like, he's talking about the battle that happens in each and every one of us between our sinful nature and the Spirit of God that dwells in us. So what also happens when you decide to follow Jesus is that his Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. This is why we can say, like, you are a temple. Right? The Holy Spirit resides in you. And yet, there's also this aspect of your sinful nature that's still alive and still well and still battling. And so, here's what I think this looks like for us. Or, or here's what I think is true. I think what's true is if I were to ask you, and each, each and every one, if I were to ask you, how it is you want to live your life. Like just in, not like what do you want to accomplish, not that kind of thing, but like how do you want to live your life? How do you want to show up in relationships? H- how do you want to show up in your relationship with God? What, what values are most important to you and how do you, what do you believe about how those values should be expressed? How do you want to care for your neighbors? How do you want to be known by your friends? How do you want to be known by your enemies? How do you want to be known by your kids? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? How do you, how do you want to relate to your spouse? How do, how do you want to relate to your time and what you do with your time? And how do you want to relate to your money and what you do with your money? I think if we were to be able to ask and sit down with each and every one of you and find out about those things, by and large, what we would hear are desires that line up with the kingdom of God. Like, I, I, I truly, I, I believe that. Maybe, maybe I'm naive and maybe I'm an eternal optimist about people. But I do believe that when we come into relationship with Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in us such that we are given the mind of Christ and we begin to desire the things of Jesus in our lives. And so I think if we could drill down deep enough, we would actually find that the majority of our, our, our hopes and our dreams and our values and our, even our desires, yes, I, I, our desires line up with what it means to be a Jesus follower, right? We desire to be more loving. We desire to be filled with more grace. We desire to have more intimacy with God, uh, much like Jesus had, where he could call him Father, and there was just this, 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 like I had this moment here, like, okay, Wesley was crying out for me during the announcements, and that's cute and fun and whatever, and Sarah took him in the back, and, and for those over here, she came back up in the aisles, we started singing the song, and he just, dada, and he reached out, and he grabbed me, and he just, like, was bear-hugging me, and burying his, his 
face into my chest here. Like, I think we want, on some level, that kind of intimacy with our Father, right? Like, that's what we believe that Jesus had. And that's, that he could call him Abba. And we have this desire to have that same type of intimacy in our lives. We desire to treat everyone, the Zacchaeuses and the prostitutes and the Pharisees and the children, with the same kind of dignity and respect that Jesus did. We desire to be more sacrificial with our time and our money. And like, des- I, I, I desire to be less judgmental. I, I believe that when we follow Christ, our desires become more aligned with him. And so like deep down, that's what's there. But then what's, what's sitting over the surface, well, let, let me say, like deep down, that's what's there. And then we have to ask the question that Paul was laying out in Romans 7, like, why don't we do those things? Like if those are the things that I really desire and that I really want, if someone were to sit down and ask me, what is it you want for your life and how do you want to live it? And I describe all of those things and they line up with the kingdom of God, then they've got to ask the question, why don't I do those things? Why do I do the things that I hate? Why am I short with people and impatient? Why do I judge more quickly? Why am I not curious about others and more concerned with myself and my selfish ambitions? Why do I do what I hate? And, and the answer to that is the flesh. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter, seven, or chapter 5. Now, when, when he uses the word flesh, let's be really clear about what he's talking about. The, the word in Greek is the word sarx. I love the word sarx. It's, it's edgy. It's earthy. It's, it's just got this grittiness to the word itself, right? And it literally can mean flesh, like my skin, my bones, my flesh, but that's not what Paul is talking about when he talks about flesh in this way. Because if it were, th- th- then we might, we might accidentally fall into some bad belief where we begin to say, like, the flesh is bad, the desires, all the desires of the flesh are bad, and we would only want to spiritual, and we think of, like, the body as some sort of jail in which the soul is going to one day escape from, and that is not a Christian belief at all, and that is not what, uh, what we're talking about in this manner. When we talk about flesh, what we're actually talking about is the motivations and the desires that do not line up with the kingdom of God. So there's, there are these two forces at work in us. There's the Spirit of God, and then there is the flesh, which wants things that are contrary to the Spirit of God. And then there is the Spirit of God trying to woo us away from the, the flesh. And there's this tension, there's this battle. And so this flesh is those motivations and those desires that really are the reason why we don't do the things that we most want to do that line up with the kingdom of God. And so Paul begins to unpack this. He unpacks this battle that's happening. And, and then he draws out the fact that when we give into the flesh, there are things that we can look at. And he points to a list, and it's not an exhaustive list, but he, he lists three that are according to three acts of the flesh that are related to sexuality, right? The, the sexual immorality, impurity, immorality, and debauchery. And then he lists two, drunkenness and orgies. These are at the end. And when, you think, when he says orgies, don't think of the sexual ones we're thinking here. This is like substance abuse, okay? So both of those have to do with substance abuse. And then right in the middle, he's got these, these attitudes, these postures that are both related to religion 
and then related to how we treat other people. Right? The religion, witchcraft, and the occult. And then the other ones, envy and dissension, factions. Now, it's an interesting list because we can begin to look at this list and go, okay, this is the things that we're not supposed to do. And we begin to be, modify our behavior so that we don't do these. And what tends to happen in the church is we tend to focus on a couple of these. Namely, the ones at the beginning and the, name, at the ones at the end. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, drunkenness, substance abuse, that sort of stuff. And then these other ones in the middle kind of go missing. And what's interesting to me is our relationship to this list of, of acts of the flesh. And, and here's what I mean what's interesting to me. Particularly as it pertains to what we are, cle- what we are willing to clearly label as wrong. And what we're even willing to say, like, yes, absolutely, there should be church discipline there. So when it comes to, like, sexual immorality and sexual impurity, debauchery, drunkenness, like, all this. Like, we've got no—I could get up and give sermons about that stuff, and nobody would have a problem. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Church should step in. We should label those things as sin. We could do those. We should, we should take responsibility—like, we should draw lines in the sand here. Yeah? It's the ones in the middle that get a little bit difficult. So—, so, so if someone was having an affair, we, we, church would step in, not a problem, be like, yes, okay, church, we do that. If on the other hand, there was a conversation that was going on to the church, and I'm just going to pick the age, like this is not happening here, and I'm not picking, like this is just the age old one, but let's just say like a church is having, we're having a discussion about worship and how we should do worship, and then all of a sudden you get two groups we think we should do worship like this. And we should think we should do people worship like this. And on the front half, that's fine. We can have conversations about what worship should look like and preferences and styles. And like there's a room for conversation there. Absolutely. But far too often what's happened in church history is it isn't just a conversation and a learning together and a coming together and working for something new. What ends up happening is these two groups begin to form some enmity towards each other. They begin to war over control of the church. They begin to to vie for power. And the church pulls apart. And now we've got first reformed on one side of the street and second reformed on the other side of the street. Right? And what we never hear in church is a sermon about discipline around factions. Or dissension. Or sowing discord. Those things make us a little bit uncomfortable because I think sometimes it's easier to deal with the sin that's out there rather than the sort of sin that's in here. And if we can be honest, like when we talk about factions and dissension and envy and discord, like those are things that, always, that I think for a lot of us are, hide in the corners of our hearts or maybe they just hide in the corner of our hearts of our church. That we want things done our way. We think our way is right. Like I'm guilty of this. I think my way is right. I'm still trying to convince you of that. My way is right. Right? But this is what ends up, and we begin to do things that begin to tear at the unity that is supposed to exist in the body of Christ. And we need to be really honest about that. Because when that happens, that is not an act of the Spirit. That is of the flesh that is beginning to war and pull apart, not just ourselves in relationship with others, but also within the body of Christ itself. And so we need to name that. 
And if we're willing to name that, if we're willing to like hold that in the space between us and God, what we begin to see is that we actually, actually what begins to happen is we are led by the Spirit to deal with it in an appropriate manner. As Christians, I believe that our deepest desires do line up with the kingdom of God, but closer to the surface is the acts of the, fl- the desires of the flesh, the desires for fame, the desires for success, the desires for influence and power, the desires to be our own God and determine our way of what is right and, the, and what the path we're going to take in the world, to be comfortable rather than to be sacrificial, to be more concerned with me than to be more concerned with my neighbor. Like These desires sit above the desires that lie underneath. And Paul exhorts us, battle this. And as you battle this in your life, you will be led by the Spirit. This is a phrase he uses there. Now what's fascinating about the words, that that phrase, led by the Spirit, it's not an uncommon phrase within church, right? How many people have heard the phrase led by the Spirit in some way, shape, or form? Yep, not uncommon. And when we use the phrase, typically what we use it is for like, well, I was just led by the Spirit to pray for you. Or I was led by the, by the Spirit to call you or to visit with you. I was led by the Spirit to start this particular ministry. I was led by the Spirit to send you a card. I was led by the Spirit to make you bacon. Whatever it might be, right? Like, and so when we use that phrase, led by the Spirit, it's most often connected with some action that we are taking in the world. And listen, the Spirit absolutely leads us to take action in the world and to do work. I am not denying that. But here's what I'll say that's interesting. There are only four times that the, word, that the phrase led by the Spirit is used in the Bible. Four. And none of them have to do with that. First time that it's used that we'll look at is what was used in uh, the passage today. In talking about this battle with the flesh, Paul says, They are in conflict with each other, so you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The other, one other place that it's used is in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. And Paul is essentially making the same argument, talking about this battle between our sinful nature and the Spirit. And that if we are living, and, and that the Spirit will lead us in this battle. The other two instances where the phrase led by the Spirit are, is used are in Matthew and in Luke. And in both cases, they're telling the same story, right? Remember how the Gospels often tell the same story in different ways. They're led, they're both, it's used twice. It's used Matthew and Luke, same story. And it's the story of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And that story is the same thing, isn't it? Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasts, and then after 40 days, the Satan comes to him and says, you're pretty hungry, right? Why don't you just turn these rocks into bread and eat? Do you really believe that you're the son of God? Do you believe that God cares for you and has an intimate relationship? Why don't you throw yourself off this cliff, and God, if he loves you, will send his angels down and will catch you? Look out over the land. I'll give you all of this. You can have power and authority over all. All you got to do is worship me. Right? It's the same story. It's the battle between being led or aligning ourselves with the things of God or giving in to the desires that sit right above that of our flesh. The desires for food, the desires for comfort, the desire for success and fame, the desires for power and authority. 
And so all four instances in which the phrase led by the Spirit, all four instances are about the Spirit leading us to a place of intense battle between our desires and God's. All four have to do with this idea of the Spirit leading us to a place where we have to confront the things that get in the way of us aligning ourselves with the kingdom of God. To a place where we get beyond mere behavior modification and truly to a place where deep transformation can happen. And this is why I believe that Paul says that those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under the law. Because the law is all about changing exterior behavior, right? Conform to these rules or pay the price. This, this is how the law operates. The law never really asks about motivation and doesn't care about motivation, right? All the law cares about is whether or not you are following the law. But it never asks the question like, why are you following the law? Does your heart truly desire these things? Why do you never follow the law? And it doesn't care. It just says, follow the law. The Spirit, though, pushes us beyond mere, mere behavior modification and adherence to the law and into our internal motivations and desires and begins to illuminate the things about ourselves that get in the way of us keeping the desires that are at the deepest level. Right? It starts to say, this thing that's sitting over this desire that keeps you from living that life that you know aligns with the kingdom of God, that life that even you want, this thing is getting in the way and I want to deal with that. I don't want you to just like change what you're doing, but I want to I remove that desire so that this is the desire that lives on. And so the Spirit's going to lead us to the place where it deals with old wounds in our past. Wounds that maybe created a vow. I will never submit to authority. I will never trust a person like this. I will never do this again. Or I always will guard myself. I will always keep a part of myself back so that I don't get hurt. These old wounds and vows respond to different triggers in the world and cause us to, to not live according to the deepest desire that the mind of Christ has given us. And the Spirit says that. That's what I want to heal. That's what I wanted to go after. Or there's these patterns that we've just established in our life as we've lived. And they're patterns that we've just, we, this is the way we've always done things. And we're kind of even a, a, a unconscious to it. We, 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 I'm getting a lot today of just like things that just happened. Just this afternoon, or just before the service, I was talking with Mike Hoppy about what's called the Johari's window. And think of four quadrants, right? There's a quadrant in which there are things that I know about myself and you know about me. I know and you know. Then there's a, th a quadrant where you got things that you know about me but that I don't know about. And then there's a list of things where uh, 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 I know them but you don't. And then there's a little quadrant where there's a bunch of things that even you, neither of us know about. And the spirit is going to attack. Like there's patterns that we have in this world where others know. Like others know how I show up and how I impact, right? But I don't know because I'm oblivious to that. And the spirit goes, oh, I want to I I awaken your mind to that. I'm going to lead you to the place where you are going to have to confront the impact that you have on others so that that desire you have to be more Christ-like will be fulfilled. There's the cultural messages that seep into our hearts that maybe we, we just don't question them. We take them as truth. This is the way the world is. This is the best way to live in the world. 
And the Spirit goes, no, 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 I want to I lead you there and I want to show you something different because, because the kingdom, kingdoms of the, this earth are always going to try to woo you away from the, kingdoms of the, the kingdom of heaven. And I, I, I want to unearth that. Because I, the Spirit, am going to lead you to the place where you can be more like Jesus. So come. Let's go. Let's dive deep. Let's get under the behaviors. Let's get under the things that we don't see. Let's, let's begin to illuminate. Let's root them out. Let's root them out so that we can plant something new. And what will be planted new will be something that grows the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Faithfulness. There we go. Now, notice, notice this. This is this. I want, I want to point this out. So often, when I think about the fruit of the spirits, you got nine of them there. I, uh, I I hear people say fruits of the spirit. It's not fruits. We're not talking fruit of the loom. We're not talking about cornucopia. We're not talking about big old hat with a bunch of different fruits on it. It's fruit, singular, fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All of them. Fruit. Singular. And here's why that's important, because I think so often we approach the fruit of the Spirit as if they are gifts. So what I mean by that is, like, I'm good at loving. I'm just really bad at self-control. Right? I'll be at your side when you need me there, and I'll care for you, and I'll serve you, and I'll help you, and I'll bring you a meal, and I'll express love all these different ways, but I don't know when to stop. I don't know when to, when to step back. I don't know when to say no. I got this thing over, over here in my life that just keeps controlling me that I have no discipline around, right? And we kind of go, well, I have, I have one of the fruits. I'm really good at that. I'm good to go. No, no, no. Fruit, singular, all of them together. Or, or I've got joy. I just don't have faithfulness, right? Like I'm bubbly and I'm, and I'm pleasant to be around. I'm an eternal optimist. You just can't count on me for anything, right? Like, I'll tell you I'll be there, but then I really won't, or I'll cancel at the last minute, and all of this sort of stuff. And so I, I'm not really, a, a, faithfulness isn't, it's not my strength. I'm much better at the, the fruit of joy. No, 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 no. Fruit of the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God does not develop one fruit. Like, you don't get to be an apple, and you get to be a grape, and you get to be a banana, right? It doesn't work that way. All of these, when the Spirit is at work in our lives, all of the fruit begin to manifest itself because the fruit is ultimately the characteristics of Christ. It's Christ-likeness. We are a people who want to be like Jesus. And if we want to be like Jesus, then we pursue these things. These things will begin to take root in our lives and, and the, 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 the desires of the flesh will be pushed aside and as the desires of the kingdom begin to sprout up, they begin to fruit and what happens is, is we look like Jesus and because we look like Jesus, we're people who are filled with love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control and the one I'm missing right there because I'm going too fast. This is what the Spirit does in our lives. And here's one, one, one piece of hope that I latch onto with the word fruit. The word fruit reminds me that this work is slow sometimes. And sometimes I think we, we, we live in a microwave society. We talk about this a lot. 
We live in a microwave society, and that thinking has seeped into how we think about spiritual transformation. And yes, spiritual transformation can happen in a moment, but more often than not, spiritual transformation happens like the growth of fruit. Love that the Bible continues to use agricultural metaphors to describe the spiritual life. It takes time. And sometimes you don't even notice the growth is happening. My grandfather passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, he is not known as a patient man at all. Um, not, not, yeah, it, it's a trait, like as piles, this is, this is what we pass on to one another, is an is inability to be patient. And, and my, I point to my grandfather. But um, despite that, uh, well, about, uh, I gotta do math, maybe 12 years ago or so, my grandmother started coming down with dementia. And I remember this time we were down in Florida, and Sarah and I were visiting. My grandma was doing quite well, and she was pretty still functional, and you could have conversations with her, but she just, she just didn't remember stuff. So in the course of like two hours, we were asked 12 times if we wanted ice cream. I said, I said yes, like seven. I mean, so I mean, it was, I was okay with it, but it was just, you could tell that it was just grating on my grandfather that he kept saying, Hilda, you've already asked this. Hilda, we've, Hilda they don't want this. Hilda, you know, over and over and over, and you could see it was irking him. And at the very beginning of her journey with dementia, he, he, he was frustrated, he would get short, there would be times where he'd have to go sit off in the room by himself and just get away from it all. But that began to change. And he, you'd see him just sort of laugh at it and he'd give you a look. Like, I know, you know, we know. He accepted her. He made space for it. And he began to see that, like, creep out into other relationships. Grandkids could run around and be a little bit louder, and it was okay. And he'd take time to listen to people's stories in ways that he hadn't before and get less frustrated in other spaces. And he began to see this fruit begin to grow that wasn't there. And I really think that that was a combination of my grandfather having to press into his faith in the midst of a new situation and the Spirit using that to lead him to something new. And I think we all have experiences like that. I mean, how many of us have said, oh, like five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to handle this. Five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to deal with this person. Five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to get through this, that situation with that much joy. Five years ago, I wouldn't have this kind of peace, right? And, and, and in the moment, we're just like, oh, man, like, where is God? What is God doing? Is anything changing? But when we look back, we can say, oh, no, 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 God's been, God's been doing something new in me. The Spirit has been leading. The fruit is growing. And when the fruit grows, like the desires begin to manifest itself and in, in the closeness with God and the intimacy that we desire, it's present in a new way. And our relationships with others, that the ways that we hoped that they would be, they begin to show up. Like we show up in this way and we're able to love and be present to folks and we begin to have conversations and we're not uncomfortable about certain kinds of conversations in the way that we were used to and so new levels of intimacy is brought up and, 
And this is where Paul shifts there as he turns into chapter 6. He, he, he changes it and it, chen- it focuses in on relationships and like carrying each other's burdens and, and gently rebuking one another. And like that begins to happen in a way that's beneficial and helpful. In a way that truly does spur one another on to grow into the things of Christ because we ourselves are being led by the Spirit. And as we are led by the Spirit, so then we can lead others. And it begins to shape and change. And yeah, it's messy and it's hard and, and sometimes we're going to get it wrong but there's also the forbearance with you know bearing with one another in the midst of this it's the the love that keeps us connected and and the factions and the discord and the dissensions all of those things don't happen because the fruit of the spirit has so taken root in our lives and and here's the other thing about this whole the the fruit in 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 the agricultural metaphor the to grow particular kinds of fruit require or yeah fruit requires a certain kind of intentionality right you don't get grapes and apples and bananas and whatever else that you want to grow simple by simply by passivity you have to make sure that the conditions are right for that particular fruit to grow in the same way we cannot take a passive approach when it comes to our spirituality and to being led by the spirit Like the fruit of the Spirit will not grow. The desires that exist deep down, those things that we want to do but we currently do not do, we are never going to get to the place where we're actually doing those things if we just sit back and wait. Like, okay, I'm going to watch another episode of Parks and Rec and I hope tomorrow it happens. That's not how it happens. It happens by intentionally creating space for the Spirit to lead us. This is one of the reasons that I'm so excited about this time of renewal for us as a congregation this summer. This is one of the reasons that we're doing these renewal workshops that you have two yet that you can attend. See what I did there? That was good, wasn't it? I don't think you think it was as good as I do. (laughs) But the whole point of these workshops is to create space for the Spirit to lead, to begin to say, what is it that you desire that currently is not happening, that thing you want to do but you do not do. That's what we're creating space for. That's what we hope because we believe that we need to be active participants in that. And so we submit ourselves. Where the Spirit leads, we follow. And just for a moment, imagine Imagine having, imagine doing those things that you want to do, that you currently do not do. Imagine, imagine living the way that you believe God is calling you to live. That way that when, when you say like, okay, if, if, if all of these things were removed from my life, if all these distractions, if all these worries, if all these concerns, then I could be more focused on this. Then I could finally do this. Then I'd have this level of intimacy or I'd be this kind of person or I'd be whatever it might be. Imagine, imagine, imagine actually living into that now with all of the worries and concerns, stress, like still here. Like I don't have to take care of this before I can attend to this. This this can happen in the midst of that. Imagine being freed from the desires that feel shallow. Those things you hate, 
but you do. Imagine what your life might look like. Imagine the freedom that you would feel. The joy. Because that's where the Spirit's leading. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us so much. I was struck this morning, even as I talked, about all that you have given us. You have given us freedom. You have given us salvation. You have given us forgiveness. You have given us your spirit. You have given us the mind of Christ. You have given us something new in the midst of something old. You have given us desires given us hope. We are a people who are grateful for all that you've given. And I pray that we would also be a people who are led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit into the places that maybe make us uncomfortable. Led by the Spirit to do to the place of intense confrontation in battle as we as we see the desires of the flesh minimized and overcome by the desire of the Spirit within us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.